Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is God's word. Please find your Bibles and make your way to Ecclesiastes. One of the most uh, peculiar and fascinating artifacts of 20th century American Christianity is the Amish Rumspringer. I don't know if you've heard of this. As you might know, the Amish are part of a, a Christian religious sect with roots in Europe, and they practice a radical form of separation uh, from what we know as the modern world. So they choose the simplicity of the old-fashioned. You know, handmade clothes, horses and buggies. There's no fashion trends to keep up with, no software updates to stay on top of. But amid their simple and separatist way of life, they also think that Amish teens, before they commit to this way of life, should have the opportunity to explore all that the modern world has to offer. This is called Rumspringa. One author describes it like this. During this time, which can last from a few months to several years, all the restrictions of the Amish church are lifted. Teens are free to shop at malls, have sex, wear makeup, play video games, do drugs, use cell phones, dress however they want, and buy and drive cars. But what they seem to enjoy most during Rumspringa is gathering at someone's barn, blasting music, and then drinking themselves into the ground. So it's a season where they're allowed and encouraged to explore any questions they have had about life outside their tradition. In some ways, Solomon's journey in the book of Ecclesiastes sounds uncomfortably like a rumspringa. You know, he says in chapter 2, verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. What do we do when we have honest, hard questions about life, about faith, about God? Is it okay to ask them? And if so, is there an honest yet healthy way to go about exploring them? Now, there are actually several differences between what Solomon's doing and a Rumspringa. Rather than searching out of the ignorance of youth, Solomon is standing on the backside of his life, 
And he's looking back at all of his achievements, all of his wisdom, and asking the question, does any of it actually make a difference? Now, his was not a season of reckless self-indulgence. It was a disciplined test to see whether certain kinds of self-indulgence will actually fill someone or whether they'll be found wanting. You know, he even says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, you know, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So it's a disciplined test. Or in verse 3 again, I searched my heart to know how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So it's not this reckless, immature binge, uh, though binge it was, uh, to decide whether he was going to choose to stay in some certain religious tradition. Solomon's wrestling was with much bigger questions. Is there any lasting gain in this life? Any meaning or significance in all of the toil that we spend our days and all of our energy and all of our dreams chasing after the hamster wheel that we talked about last week? When life's experience doesn't seem to make sense, is it okay to stop and ask why? To throw our arms up to step back and test some things and wrestle with them. Can I be honest if I have doubts about God? Can I be honest if I'm frustrated with how things are going right now? Can I be honest about questions and doubts I might have about Scripture and what it teaches? Is there any room in the church for that kind of disappointment and confusion? Or do I have to just kind of put on a happy face and pretend like everything's okay, all the while my faith is hollowing out inside? Sociologist uh, David Kinneman uh, has done some research recently on why so many young people tend to leave the church or even the faith that they grew up in. And he makes some interesting observations. He notes, quote, young Christians and former Christians say the church is not a place that allows them to express doubts. They do not feel safe admitting that faith doesn't always make sense. In addition, many feel that the church's response to doubt is trivial and fact-focused, as if people could be talked out of doubting. 36% of 18 to 29-year-olds don't feel they can ask the most pressing questions of life in church. That's over one-third of our young people. Don't feel like there's any place for that. And that's not just the experience of those within the church. It's also the perception of those on the outside looking in. But don't think that young people are the only ones asking hard questions. Remember, Solomon was standing on the other side of his life. What do we make of a lifetime of hard work with little or nothing to show for it at the end? I mean, I've prayed my whole life, I've gone to church every Sunday, and my business has collapsed. What do I do with that? How can I make sense of the pain and suffering that we've endured lately? You know, why, why does cancer strike my family? Why, why is it that after all my hard work as a parent that my child's the one turning their back on God? I thought I did everything right. Why did God let my parents get divorced? Why did he let my loved one die? What if I don't think that 
some things that the Bible calls sin really are sin. What do I do with that? Can I ask that? We all have honest, hard questions about life in this world. Is there any room to step back and put life under the microscope to examine it and to ask those hard questions about it or about faith or about God? As Solomon introduces the study that he is undertaking in our passage, I think he offers us both an invitation and a suggestion. His invitation, yes, it's okay to ask hard, honest questions about life and faith and God. In fact, it's good and it's important to ask them. Solomon's exploration is an invitation for us to come along with him as he wrestles with these hard things. But with that invitation also comes a suggestion. Learn from Solomon. Don't feel like you need to repeat his entire study. Okay? Build on what he has discovered by looking at life from a ground level wisdom under the sun. And ask your hard questions with a godly wisdom. A wisdom that wrestles with scripture seriously. That, that does so as part of the believing community and with an awareness of God. So let's pray as we look at this passage and, and Solomon's example and suggestions for how we wrestle with life's hard questions. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you know every heart in this room. You know the joy that is beaming from some hearts. You know the sadness that is hiding, doing everything we can to not let it out, let others know. You know the disappointment and disenchantment, the criticism and frustration in some hearts. And you're not threatened by any of it. God, will you open our eyes and our hearts as we look at this passage? Will you guide us by your spirit to know how to wrestle honestly? Not pulling any punches, but how to wrestle in a healthy way with godly wisdom. It's our prayer, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we started our new series through Ecclesiastes, and we saw how there is really one key question that is driving Solomon's exploration of all of life under the sun, life as we see and experience it day to day in this fallen world. And that question was summarized in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So, is there any lasting gain in this rat race we call life? That's the question. And according to his preliminary conclusion, which is also the theme of the book in verse 2, the answer is sadly no. <laughs> Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything we look to for lasting gain in this world under the sun is vapor and smoke. It doesn't last. 
and it doesn't amount to much. Now, to show us how he came to that conclusion, he's going to turn to several research projects, if you will, over the next six chapters. And the first of those research projects takes us from 112 through the end of chapter 2. And today we're going to look at the introduction to that or the abstract uh, of that project in 112 through 18. So again, if, you, if you're not there in your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, that's in page uh, 658. And there are two objects that Solomon places under the microscope in this first study as he looks for lasting gain in the world. Human achievement and human wisdom. Those are the two things under investigation. Verses 12 through 15 introduces study of human achievement, of all that is done under heaven, which he then will elaborate on in 2, 1 through 11. And then verses 16 to 18 in our chapter, they parallel that first half and they introduce the second study of wisdom itself, which he'll then later elaborate on in 2, 12 through 16. Now, we'll look more closely at the elaboration, at the details in chapter 2 in the next couple of weeks. This morning, I want us to think about what we can learn from how Solomon approaches his study. And from the very fact that he's actually willing to engage in that kind of study and ask these hard questions. He begins by identifying his credentials. In other words, drawing attention to his resume, his CV. Notice the similarity between verses 12 and 16, which are the first verse of each half of our passage. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So this is who I am as I set out onto this study. You need to know where I'm coming from. I'm the king. And when you think about it, who better to test whether human achievement can provide lasting gain than the king? You know, especially this king who was at the height of Israel's kingdom, their monarchy, when Israel sat at the center of the world and the nations would just flock to it to see the wealth, to learn the wisdom. Who better? You know, being that kind of king gave Solomon a pretty unique perspective to test things that you and I can only dream about, the possessions, the wealth, the wisdom, and so on. And you add to his position as king his world-famous wisdom. First uh, Kings 4 says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was one of the most learned men in human history. So we're not talking about some high school term paper where you copy and paste a few things out of Wikipedia and then change a couple words to pass it off as your own. Now, he's qualified to do this kind of study. His, his broad scope exploration because of his position and because of his wisdom. And so as king and with his wisdom, he begins a systematic disciplined exploration 
of everything humans spend their time and energy doing during their few days on life uh, of life on this earth to see if any of it ultimately matters in the end. So verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Does any of our activity or our accomplishments ultimately make a lick of difference? That's the question. And he uses his wisdom to guide his investigation. But we should note that the kind of wisdom he's applying here is primarily human wisdom. Uh, We don't see in this passage and in much of Ecclesiastes the kind of heavenly wisdom that we find elsewhere in Proverbs, the wisdom that begins and ends with the fear of the Lord. Now, it's there, but it's not prominent. Uh, God is barely mentioned in our passage. Instead, Solomon is being a good scientist. He is taking an empirical approach. He's setting aside his biases. He's working with observable and testable data. What we can see touch and experience here and now in this human realm under the sun to see if there's any lasting gain. So this is wisdom from below. This is the best of human knowledge under the sun. He is, as it were, exploring life momentarily as if God isn't part of the picture. So you might think of it as a a scientific roomspringer. That's what he's doing. But not only will he use that wisdom to explore human achievement in 2, 1 through 11, he also steps back to examine human wisdom itself. Verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Does living according to wisdom help sort any of this out, this quest for lasting gain? Why not rush headfirst into madness and folly? And by madness and folly, uh, he's not talking about intellect here, but morality. Uh, Throughout the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, foolishness has less to do with one's IQ and much more to do with the direction of one's life, whether for honor or for shame. And he elaborates on that study in 2, 12 through 16. So he's setting up, he's giving you an introduction. Here's where we're going. But before he gets into the details, he gives us a summary of his findings. And again, they're not very encouraging. Middle of verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. As Solomon examines all that we do with our time and energy, so building our careers, taking care of our homes, raising our families, helping out at the soup kitchen, you know, whatever it is we do, he sees a shadow of disappointment looming over All of it. All of these dreams that we look to are but smoke and vapor dissipating before we have a chance to take hold of them. Or to use his imagery like shepherding the wind or chasing the wind. You can't grab it. 
in summary, Solomon finds that creation is upside down and broken. It's upside down and broken. Think about how what he sees and experiences contrasts with God's design in the garden back in Genesis 1. When God made humanity in his image to be his children and servants of his kingdom, work was something good. He placed Adam in the garden to work it and keep it before the fall, before sin entered the world. That was an act of worship. That was good. Work is part of God's good design for creation. But when Solomon studies it, he sees something different. It is an unhappy or, more literally, evil business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Human rebellion against God in the beginning not only put us at odds with God, our creator and king, it also frustrated our work. Taking something good and making it bad. Unhappy. Evil. As Romans 8.20 puts it, all creation was subjected to futility, to vanity, because of that fall. Life in the hamster wheel. We spend our whole lives studying and working hard. But as we saw last week, our work adds nothing new to this world and won't be remembered anyway. It's vapor. Like trying to capture the wind. A useless effort. So Solomon summarizes in 115, saying in effect that capturing the wind or trying to find gain in this world through what we do is as impossible as restoring to its original state something that's been damaged or counting something that's not there. You want to try and find lasting gain in your job, try counting something that's not there. That's what it's like. To make matters worse, remember, you go down into the deep, dark valley in order to make sense of God on the other side. So we keep getting lower and lower in Solomon's study. To make matters worse, when Solomon turns his attention to consider how wisdom itself might maybe sort out some of this. Uh, might make sense of this broken and upside-down creation. He finds that not even wisdom is able to sort it out. Middle of verse 17, I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. So he found his wisdom, his knowledge, even his moral knowledge, powerless to change the broken course of creation. All it did was enabled to see more clearly how messed up things are. It's like when you're driving for weeks, days maybe, weeks, in my case sometimes months, with the check engine light on. You know, and you have this sneaking suspicion that there's probably something wrong. But you're living in relative blissful ignorance for a while. And then you go to the shop and you gain knowledge. From the mechanic of what's really going on. So Solomon concludes in verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
We all, if we're honest, recognize what Solomon discovered about human achievement and the inconsistencies and vanity of this world. We know. In fact, it's that keen sense of the world's brokenness that often drives us to ask those hard questions. Why? Is this true? Does God matter? Is he relevant at all? But if human wisdom is powerless to sort it out, how should we proceed with our honest questions? Again, the fact that Solomon is even asking them, I think, is an invitation for us to wrestle honestly with them. But it's also a suggestion to do so having learned from Solomon. His invitation doesn't necessarily mean we need to repeat his precise examination. In fact, his conclusions warn us against such a path. Because that path has already been found wanting. As Phil Riken, a pastor, says, if we take a secular perspective trying to understand the world on our own terms rather than on God's terms, we will never escape Ecclesiastes 1. Study all the philosophy, research all the religion, take all the personal improvement courses, and it will still end in frustration and vexation. We need What we need is an honest and healthy way to explore. A way that allows us to put all our questions, all our doubts, all our fears and criticisms on the table so that they can actually be dealt with rather than just suppressed or simply dismissed. What we need if we follow the trajectory of Ecclesiastes is heavenly wisdom. A wisdom from above. And I want to suggest to you whether you are a young person trying to figure out whether this Christianity thing is irrelevant or relevant or whether it holds any water, or or whether you're someone in a stage of life, in a different stage of life, asking that same question, or perhaps wrestling with any number of the pressing questions that life gives us, I want to invite you to put those questions on the table and suggest that you explore them with a godly wisdom that takes your doubts and your questions and wrestles with Scripture seriously, that does so in the context of a believing community, and that does so with an awareness of God. That's what I think godly wisdom looks like in this case. And I want to talk about the importance of those three aspects of godly wisdom as we conclude. So first, we need to take our questions and wrestle seriously with Scripture. Now, you may have doubts about whether the Bible's even true, but unless you understand what it's actually saying, you're in no place to evaluate, make that evaluation. First, you need to understand it. You need to wrestle. If we're willing to ask the hard questions... We need to be willing to do the hard work of understanding the Bible, uh, which means learning how to read it in context, which means learning how to understand how the different parts of it communicate their message, poetry or narrative. 
Understanding how the whole thing works together and, and finds its center point in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Word of God truly is living and active. It exposes our souls on the one hand and heals them on the other. But random Bible verses plucked out of context and slapped down in answer to someone's honest penetrating question are neither a proper way to help that person nor an adequate excuse for that person to walk away from God and Scripture. Too often when I hear of someone rejecting Scripture, what they've actually rejected is a complete misunderstanding of the Bible. And part of this is because we don't always communicate it very well. We all need to take Scripture seriously and work hard to understand it, what it actually says, which means that pastors and parents and teachers have to move beyond the the hollow platitudes and the pat answers and come alongside our friends and our children and our family and join them in their wrestle. Dig in with them into their questions. Only then will we be helpful, and only then will those that are looking for help have something to work with. We have to take the Bible seriously as we wrestle with hard questions. And to do that well, we need to wrestle in the context of the believing community, one another. That's the second aspect of godly wisdom here. As life gets confusing or disorienting, uh, including God and the things of faith, you need to know that you're not the first person to ask that question. And you're not the only one asking it right now. You're not alone in your doubts and your fears and your criticisms. But your best mentors, as you struggle honestly, are not those who are themselves looking for the nearest exit, who are piling up excuses to get out. And even less those who left a long time ago or who were never part of the community to begin with. For starters, spiritual wisdom requires the Spirit of God. If you don't believe in Jesus, then you will not have the Spirit in order to make sense of some of these things. But more specifically, your best mentors are those who have wrestled deeply and honestly with those same questions and have come to a place where they're still standing and now stronger in that faith. Those are your best mentors who understand you and who understand the Scripture. But if we're never honest about the fact that some of us have questions and doubts that we've wrestled through or that we're still wrestling with, if we instead present ourselves as having it all together, And if we don't make room for doubts and hard questions to be safely discussed in church, in an environment of love and grace and humility, then no one's ever going to feel free to ask them. We're just going to keep it bottled up. Either because 
we're afraid that if we do, someone's going to judge us for asking that. Or else, because we don't think that they actually care enough to help us answer it. Or, or, or would even be possible to shed light on it. What are we afraid of when someone is honest about a doubt? I mean, I know what happens in my heart when someone brings up an honest question and it looks like they're kind of headed off the course. I, I just want to jump in and rescue them. You know, What am I afraid of if someone brings up an honest question? Are we insecure because we don't really know the answer? That's sometimes. And I don't know is an okay answer when that happens. As parents, are we afraid of our children leaving the faith if they think about those ideas or are exposed to them? Or perhaps more sharply, are we afraid of what people will think of us as parents if our children leave the faith? And so any sign of disbelief, we just jump on it and smother it out. Let me ask another question. Do your children know that if they were ever to come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry, but I want you to know that I'm not a Christian and I don't want to be. Do your children know if they ever said that to you, that they would be met with unconditional love and grace and acceptance? If they're not sure that that's the answer they'll get, you may never be able to see what's going on in their hearts. We need to wrestle honestly. God can take it. We need to take the Bible seriously in the context of the believing community and all the grace and humility and love that's befitting that community. And we need to do so with an awareness of God. And that's the third aspect of godly wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And by fear, Solomon means honor, respect, a holy reverence. So recognizing that God is God and I am not. Fearing God. If we approach our questions with no awareness of God, as we've said before, we'll never escape Ecclesiastes 1. But as we wrestle with Scripture, as we do that together in the family of believers, we're going to see that God is the only one who can make sense and bring order into the chaos called our daily life. He's the only one who can make right this upside-down and broken creation. So approaching our doubts and our questions with an awareness of God means that first, our questions really do matter. They're not just to be suppressed or dismissed with a wave of a hand. They matter to God. He cares for us. And how we think about God and respond to him also matters because he's creator and king and judge. As he says later in Ecclesiastes, he's the one who's going to bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. So it matters 
that we wrestle with them. Second, wrestling with our questions with an awareness of God means that sometimes we may need to adjust our categories for how we view life. We may have really good questions about God's goodness. How, how can a good God let someone go to hell? That's a good question. But it may mean that our definition of good needs some adjusting. You know, that we're more interested in what's good in our eyes in this world than what's good in God's eyes who made this world and who rules it. We may need to adjust our categories. Or we might have honest questions about how some things are even possible. You know, miracles, uh, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, things that don't fit what we know about modern science. But could it be that we need to take down the categories of science and rebuild them around the truth of the resurrection and the hope of the new creation, which might cause some things in science to make even better sense? So, and finally, uh, wrestling with an awareness of God, it, it means that our questions matter. It means that we may need to adjust some categories. But finally, it means that even if we'll never understand something, we still have hope. We still have hope. Some things will never make sense to me. I will never understand why we had to lose two babies to miscarriage. That will never make sense to me. I will never understand why my best friend's daughter, after beating cancer, suffered brain damage so severe that she'll never speak or walk. I don't have a category for that. There's a lot of serious questions we, we ask. But when we approach those questions with an awareness of God, the God who sent his son into this world to redeem it and who is making all things new, we might not have answers, but we do have hope. We do have hope. And it's that hope that carries us through that dark valley. It's that hope that we celebrate in the gospel, that we celebrate with the Lord's table this morning. It's that hope that makes all of the difference, the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. This world is upside down and broken. It's going to raise hard questions. We need godly wisdom to wrestle with them, a wisdom that points us to the cross. On the night when Jesus was handed over to be crucified, he celebrated one last meal with his disciples. And if you'll remember, these are the same disciples who, as Jesus shared life with them, often didn't get it. He would explain something and it just it would go right over the head. Especially when he talked about going to the cross. That made no sense to them. Some of them even tried to stop it from happening. When it happened, all of them ran and hid. 
Even after his resurrection, some still doubted. But Jesus speaks hope and peace into our fears and our doubts. The hope and peace that he purchased for scared, confused sinners on the cross. And when we celebrate the Lord's table, it's that cross of Christ that we look back to, where he took all our sin and all the brokenness of this world on himself, laying his life down for us. All the confusion, all of the frustration, all our angry rebellion against God poured out on the cross. And this same table, this same meal points us forward to another meal that we will celebrate in the new creation when all our questions will be answered. When all our tears will be wiped away. When we will rejoice in the presence of God forever. So this is a table for sinners. This is a table for doubters. This is a table for the disenchanted and the frustrated It's a table for all who seek refuge in Christ. So if Jesus is your hope, if you have placed your faith in him, even if you still have questions and are still wrestling hard with some things, if Jesus is your hope, come to the table and let your perspective be renewed by the cross. Give your doubts and your fears to Christ. Feed on his grace. If you're not a Christian, or you're not sure what that means, then I ask that you refrain from taking of the elements this morning. This is a family meal. But instead of of receiving the sign, take hold of Jesus and faith. Take hold of Christ. So as I pray, invite the ushers to come forward, and we will celebrate the Lord's table. Jesus, how we need you. God, we recognize it's uncomfortable to be honest sometimes. It's uncomfortable and it's scary because it means we're not in control. I thank you that you are. That you are on your throne. That you allow nothing to befall us that isn't part of your great and mysterious plan. And that you not only are in control, but that you entered into this world to bring hope, to bring renewal, to rescue us from our sins through Jesus. We thank you for the grace we have in Christ. And that's the grace we celebrate as we partake of this meal together. Bless this communion feast. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.